invite you to open your Bibles to our scripture passage for today. Uh, we're looking at Exodus chapter 18, and we're going to read the whole chapter, so Exodus 18, 1 to 27. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eleazar, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses, his son and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took a seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you, for you cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. Have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. This will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain of all these people, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us today 
uh, in this passage that in some ways is different than the ones we've been looking at and, and yet no less applicable. Uh, Father, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would speak your words to our soul and to our hearts. Build us up in Christ Jesus. Uh, Father, show us how you are calling us to serve. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you could imagine with me for a moment that you could get a line of 200 million people and get them all in a line. 200 million people, right? It would wrap around the city 20 times. And if you could stand there and touch each one of those people, one person every second, without any breaks, without any sleep, uh, with just doing it one second continually, it would only take you about 2,300 some days to touch all those people, to work through that line. Now contrast that with how it only took some 500 days, despite our best efforts to slow the spread, for COVID to infect some 200 million people, and probably way more than that, which are just the estimates. That is the power of multiplication. And in a world with just some under some 8 billion people, it, it, we have watched in amazement how COVID has reached every corner of it. There are just a few isolated places, mostly remote islands in the Pacific that are not very friendly to visitors right now, that are the only places that COVID has not touched. We live in a global world right, where multiplication allows a single virus from a Chinese city that none of us had ever heard of two years ago to upend the global economy. Multiplication can do great harm. It can allow bad things to spread so quickly that there's no way of stopping it. But multiplication can also lead to good things. A long time ago, God showed up to Abraham, who was the father of the Israelite nation. And he told this old, childless man that, hey, Abraham, guess what? One day, look up, your children will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Look at the sand. Your children will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And how in the world do you go from this one old guy without any kids to billions of people? It is only through multiplication. And today's passage is where we get kind of a, a first glimpse of how God is doing that. Uh, what I want you to ask yourself is just this. Have you found your seat in God's orchestra of praise? Now that maybe doesn't make a lot of sense. It will as we get uh, further on in the passage. But have you found your seat in God's orchestra of praise? And we're going to look at this under two headings. First, the multiplication of worshipers and then the multiplication of ministry. So the multiplication of worshipers. Uh, Israel is continuing on in their long trek, their camping trip in the desert. And at one point, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, shows up with Moses' wife and his two sons. Now, we aren't sure when Moses sent his wife away uh, and when, um, basically what time in the timeline that happened. It may have been that Moses sent them away back during the time of the plagues when they were still in Israel. Moses said, hey, guess what, guys? I'm going to be really busy with work for a while, so why don't you go spend some time uh, with your family out in Midian? Uh, another idea is that maybe Moses uh, sent his wife away as they were leaving Egypt to go and check in with her father-in-law to update them, to send their kids there, and then come meet us again a little bit later in the desert. Well, we don't know exactly when Zipporah left, but eventually she comes back with the family. And Moses hears of it, and he goes out to greet them, and he honors his father-in-law with a bow and a kiss. And then they go into the tent, 
And Moses kind of updates them. Here's all the amazing things that God has done from when we were in Egypt to how he's taken care of us as we're walking through this desert. And Jethro is delighted to hear about it. And not just as a father-in-law is delighted when his son-in-law is doing well because that generally means, well, his daughter will be taken care of, but it's more than that. He realizes that this God that probably seemed a little bit fishy when Moses took his family down to Egypt, that this God that Moses suddenly got interested in is unlike any other God he'd ever heard of. He says it in verse 11, now that I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. And if you remember back then, we talked about it, that so many people believed in all kinds of gods. And these gods were often like humans, just stronger, right? They were almost sometimes portrayed like, you know, honey, I blew up the kid, right? Toddlers that could destroy a lot of things, but if they liked you, they could be helpful. And from an ancient perspective, it was silly then to put all your chips in with just one god because you were limiting yourself because there was no god that had power over everything. You wanted a diversified set of gods that you were offering sacrifices to so that you could kind of have like 360-degree protection in your life. It's actually not all that different from today. So many people today think, oh, there cannot be just one god or one true religion. Instead, what we do is people often create like a buffet-style spirituality. Let me look at all the options out there, and then I'll pick some of this because this looks good, I'll take some of this because this looks good, and you kind of create your own religion for what you think works best for you. But one of the messages that we see in the plagues is that the God of Israel is different than any God these people had ever heard of. The God of Israel has no borders. He has no limits. That you are actually limiting yourself if you are not fully giving yourself to him because he is the God above all gods. And so Jethro sees what this God has done, Yahweh, and he realizes, wow, this God is different than anything I've ever heard of. And Jethro has turned from a spectator into a worshiper, a participant. The last time that Jethro saw Moses was back in Midian when Moses told his father-in-law, hey, I want to take me and the the family back to Egypt to see how my people are doing. And, And Moses would have, or Jethro would have known something was up with Moses because Moses discovered this God, Yahweh, when he was out in the desert. And Jethro was probably wondering, okay, well, you know, how is this going to lead, right? Is this just the latest adventure of Moses? Is he going to come back? You know, what does this look like? But Jethro said, okay, well, give it a shot. But as long as Moses doesn't forget who he's dealing with down in Egypt, Pharaoh, the most powerful man alive at that moment. But then think about it. After however long ago it was when Jethro said bye to Moses, now Jethro is sitting in this tent with his son-in-law. This random guy that he first met when he was wandering out in the wilderness and helped beat up some unruly shepherds has now been transformed into the leader of a nation. He's leading a nation of worshipers through the desert. It's something Jethro and Moses never would have imagined. And this has implications for all of us. That that if your spirituality only comes from kind of like a self-serve buffet, well, the reality is our spiritual appetites tend to be like the appetites of kids at a buffet, Hey, just look, watch at the lunch today after the service and watch what the kids put on their plate, right? A third of a plate for green jello, a third of a plate for chips, a third of a plate for cookies. I'm all set, mom, right? I'm, I'm ready for lunch. It's no wonder kids love buffets. 
But no matter how hard you try, a diet of chips, cookies, and green jello will never make you healthy, no matter what proportions of those you, you play with. And so many people today do the same thing spiritually. You fill your plate with spiritual junk food. It feels good in the moment, but it cannot heal your soul. And when we take that buffet approach to spirituality, what you end up doing is you end up creating a, a spirituality that just reflects your own innate desires, not something that transforms your desires into something better. In fact, it's almost impossible, it is impossible, to create your own spirituality and have it lead to some sort of transcendence if you're the one picking it, because you're never going to pick something that is beyond you, that is above you. But the guarantee of following the God who is above all gods is that there will be part of following that God that doesn't taste good, that you think, I don't know if I want this. It's going to challenge you. And yet the promise is it will lead you to something that is so much bigger than yourself. As Ross Douthat once wrote, he said, the great promise of Christianity is that it is possible to encounter the divine, the revolutionary, and the impossible, and to have your life completely shattered and remade. And you don't get that from a buffet. You only get that from surrendering your entire life to a God you realize is worth giving everything for and then letting him build you up in his image. So are you following a God? Right? Or maybe is your form of Christianity one that only agrees with you? A God who only coddles you, a God who never contradicts you, a God who never tells you things that are maybe uncomfortable. Right? That might be a Christianity or a religion that's easier for, to, for you to swallow, but you also lose out on your ability to have your life remade into something beyond what you can imagine. And you can't get healthy eating just jello and chips, no matter how many different ways you cook them. It won't work. Jethro, by realizing that this God is worth giving everything for, has been turned into a worshiper. Verse 11, Jethro brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And ironically, Jethro, who's just been watching from the sidelines, is quicker to proclaim what the Israelites who have been you know, involved in all this action seem somewhat dense to, that the Lord is greater than all other gods. And what leads Jethro to this proclamation? He watches God's work in the world. He sees what God is doing. The way that God is multiplying worshipers is by spreading the word about what God has done. It even kind of ties into our corporate reading, right? Where the main thing that uh, Tyndall was getting at was what convinces someone of God isn't by having a bunch of arguments to kind of bully them into belief, but it is by letting them see the power and the beauty and the glory of what God has done, and people will say, that's unique. I want that. And in the Old Testament, we see that God is laying the foundation for multiplying worshipers around the world. That from the very beginning, right, the Old Testament is not broken off from the New Testament, or the Old Testament is just about God's people, the Israelites, and then the New Testament, God gets friendly and invites others in. No. The Old Testament lays the foundation, shows us God's big 
goal to turn the world into a symphony of praise. Consider Isaiah 19, starting in verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And if you think of the geography, right in the middle of that is Israel. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, and the Egyptians will go to Assyria, and the Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, Israel, my inheritance. We don't get how radical this statement is, right? Think of everything we've seen about how the Egyptians have treated the Israelites. Egypt was Israel's original archenemy. Assyria will be a continual source of trouble for the Israelites. And God says, guess what? One day, your enemies will be turned into worshipers. Your enemies will become your brothers and sisters. One day, there will be open borders between these nations, and everyone will gather together to proclaim the glories of the God who is above all other gods. God doesn't do solos, but he's building a chorus of people from around the world and teaching them to sing the songs of his love. And God isn't looking for a bunch of worshipers who all look the same or sing in the same voice or sing in the same language, but a grand chorus from every corner of the world engaged in worshiping this God who is more beautiful than any God they have ever seen. And for us living on this side of Christ, the primary thing that God has done isn't the redemption of Israel from Egypt. That was a foreshadowing of the redemption that God would do through Christ of redeeming us from the evils of this world, from our own sin, from the prince and principalities of the air of the, and the devil. That God loved sinners so much that he came down from his comfortable home in heaven to rescue screwed-up sinners. And there is no religion like the Christian religion. You want to see how great our God is? We worship a God who did not demand the blood of those who hated him, but offered his own blood in their place. He did not demand a sacrifice for our sins, but became the sacrifice. He is the God above all other gods, and he didn't consider his perfection as a reason to kind of look down at us struggling and saying, they're so screwed up, I don't even want to deal with them, I'm so far above them. But he said, I love them so much that I will die for them so that they can be lifted up and utterly transformed and taste my goodness. And you cannot have that if you're always creating your own spirituality. There is no other God that will die to have you. And the gods of our age, which are so often manifest in these material things, whether it's money or beauty or success or acclaim or thrills, none of those gods that you might be worshiping right now with your time or your attention will give themselves so that you can be filled. None of them will empty themselves so you can be full, but they all always demand more. And they are never satisfied. And in the end, they will leave you so empty. Only the God above all gods can fill your soul. And this leads into our second point, the multiplication of leadership. So the day after this reunion and this feast, 
Moses has to get back to work. He can't even sleep in. Sun rises, he's got to be out there. And Jethro then wakes up, probably wakes up a little bit after Moses. He walks over to Moses' tent, going to greet Moses in the morning. Moses isn't there. Oh, I wonder where Moses is. He walks outside again, and he sees this long, winding line, and he's, well, what's, what's happening out here? So he walks around it to see what the attraction is, and there at the front of the line is Moses and two people arguing. <laughs> and, and, and Jethro says, okay, well, I guess Moses is tied up. He goes and plays with the grandkids for a little while. Lunch comes. He heads into the tent for meet, midday meal. Moses' seat is empty. Instead, someone takes some manna out to Moses so he can have a working lunch while he listens to more arguments. And then dinner comes, and Moses runs into his tent. He kisses his wife and his kids. He scarfs down some more manna and then heads back out and sees how many people he can tend to before sunset. It probably Zipporah wonders if she should have just stayed with her family in Midian because she's not seen much more of Moses with these crazy work hours. The newfound freedom of Israel brought a bunch of new problems. Things that they would just have to suck up as slaves and deal with because they had no recourse, they now have a way to resolve those disputes. Maybe some of these things were even festering from back when they were slaves in Egypt and have just been growing and finally they explode and it comes to Moses' attention. And so Jethro asks Moses when he gets a chance, why do you sit alone as judge? Will all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Well, because the people come to me and they need to know God's will. Whenever someone asks you, why are you so busy right now? And we give a similar answer, right? Oh, I've just got so many emails to return, so many phone calls, so many things on the to-do list at the house, so many things that are just I'm behind on. The, the issue is never us, it's them, it's those other things, right? All these people need me to answer their questions. They're counting on me so they can continue their work. But Jethro's next words are kind of surprising. Verse 17, what you are doing is not good. Moses is working hard. He's giving himself to hearing all these complaints. He's treating every case with care, which is part of the reason it's taking so long. What you're doing is not good. Not good? I mean, do you see how hard I'm working here? How can this not be good? From, sunri from sunrise to sunset, I'm serving these people. What's not good about that? I mean, you can be doing good things, meeting real needs, working hard to address real problems, but because of how you are doing it or how much you are doing it, it's not good. And why is it not good? Well, Jethro says in verse 18, you and all these people who come out to you will only wear yourselves out. The line to see Moses takes longer than the DMV line. And Moses was on track to be as friendly as the DMV employees after waiting, you know, and seeing all these people in the line. By trying to be faithful in his calling, Moses was actually on track to wear not just himself out, but also hurt the very people he was trying to help. God doesn't like burnout. Busyness doesn't mean faithfulness. Boundaries are good. Rest is a gift that we shouldn't reject or continually put off. I mean, think about it. When God created the world, he didn't do it in an instant. He didn't just snap his fingers and everything popped up. He said, sweet, that's done. But a God who is incapable of getting tired took breaks. He actually, in one sense, worked less than Moses. 
because he took the time at the end of each day to look at everything that he had done and appreciate it, say, this is good. This was good work today. And if God set boundaries for his work, how much more should we? And notice that Jethro also mentions the people are going to get burned out. Often we work so hard because we think we're trying to serve these people. But when you're spread so thin, you usually aren't helping the very people you're trying to serve but are probably creating frustration and they know you're already spread too thin and, and if you just would say it, it would bring so much relief. But it's so easy to justify why we work so hard. Whether it's in our work, whether it's at our hobbies or our home or, or other commitments. It's so easy to justify, well, most, just look at this line, Jethro, I'd love to take a break, but they're all depending on me. And Moses has something that none of us can say. He was the only one that God talked to. Right? How else will they get their questions answered? They, they can't ask Siri or you know, open their Bible. But those excuses wouldn't have worked for Jethro. First, he says, you must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Jethro affirms Moses' calling. He then goes and actually gives us a preview of what Moses is going to start doing by writing down God's law and teaching it so that everyone can hear it. He's not saying you need to step out of the job, but Moses thought that to fulfill this job means I've got to do it all. But Moses says, no, appoint some men of good character, not easily swayed by money or bribes, and place them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And then they'll deal with, you know, 80% of the issues, and the 20% that are kind of stickier, you'll come to you, Moses. And what's the goal? Verse 22, that will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. Moses, you can't carry everything in your pack. You've got to take some stuff out and let other people carry it. In verse 23, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. And Moses follows his father-in-law's advice, and it works beautifully. Why is it good to share the load? Why is it good to multiply ministers, those people serving God's people? Well, on one level, it's there's more people, there's more needs, but it's actually more than that. One of the reasons is it's to remind us that none of us are God. Every one of us has limitations, we have weaknesses, we have things that we can't do, we need sleep. And even the best of us, you have weaknesses. You have the areas where you can't do something. We all need to even improve. And Moses, who is Israel's maybe greatest leader, never got to a place where he couldn't accept some advice, even from you know, surprising places like his father-in-law. And in the same way, every one of us always has, are you open to hearing advice from others and correction? Because none of us are perfect. But then tied to that, it's, it's good to know our boundaries. God knows what your limits are, and we shouldn't fight against them. And you've got to realize that these boundaries for your life look different for different people. God made us all different. Some people can handle a lot, some people can handle less. Right? And you can't always be judging yourself by what another person is doing. You can't compare yourself to how much they're doing or how little they're doing, but realizing how am I faithful with what God has given me and the boundaries he's given me, and am I content with that, and am I faithful in that? And those boundaries change throughout your life. 
There are times where you're able to do a lot more. There are times where you need to slow down. I think this is one of the hardest things about getting older. Right? Managing all your medical appointments can feel like a full-time job. And you can wonder, what's my point here in life anymore? But God does not expect you to do all the things that you did 20 years ago. But if you're still here, it's because God still has something for you to do. And you've just got to figure out, what does it look like with these, in this new stage of life? When I'm frustrated at myself by how little I can do, what does it mean to be faithful to God in this season? Uh, John Calvin wrote a number of helpful things on this passage. He said, For the, this propensity to engage in too many things is a very common malady, and so many are carried away by it and not easily restrained. In order, therefore, that everyone should confine himself within his own bounds, let us learn that in the human race, God has so arranged our condition that individuals are only endued with a certain measure of gifts. Right? He's saying no one has it all. No one's a superhero. No one gets to a place where they don't need help from others. I think of it, even the Olympic athletes who maybe are the, the best in one thing, right? the best in the world, there's a half dozen other things where probably you are better than them at that. Right? And the way that God has made us is not kind of independent you know, stars, but a community of people that help each other in the ways that God has gifted us. You know, another thing to consider from this is that God gives us those limits to learn to be dependent on one another, and which is really hard for a lot of us because we don't like to be dependent on others. We want to be independent. We want to do it ourselves. And we often think of Christian growth as kind of an independent, an individual thing, right? Oh, I'm going to grow as a Christian. But, but have you ever considered Christian growth is impossible as an individual? Consider Paul's words in Ephesians 4.15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You can't have a healthy body if all you have is a bunch of heads. <laughs> you can't have a healthy body if all you have is a bunch of feet. We all need to learn to work together to become the full-figured body of Christ. You cannot be a mature Christian if you are not connected to other Christians in your life. God is creating an orchestra of praise. He doesn't just look out and pick five talented musicians and give them all solos while we all watch. He invites everyone to come up and take a seat on the stage and add your voice and your gifts to his cosmic symphony that will one day overtake the world. And God delights in hearing that rich sound of millions upon millions of people lifting their voices to create this harmony of praise. So just kind of three specific applications for us as we wrap up. One, we all need to be praying uh, for God to raise up more qualified men for the roles of elder and deacon in our church. We want to give our leaders a rest. They're coming up next year on their, the rest year. We have a growing church. We have more people. And are you praying that God will help raise up others 
to shoulder the load of caring for folks in this church. Second application. Maybe you're one of those folks, and we have a lot here, that are doing a ton. But are you at that point where you feel like you're at the edge of what you can do in serving the church? And this is such a hard place to be because you're serving because there's genuine needs, right? And, and so often, you know, there are a, just a small f- number of folks that are carrying these heavy packs in the church. And, and some people are gifted that way, but, but you can't do that forever often. And I would ca- challenge you to consider right, that if you're in that position where you feel like you're at the limit, that perhaps the most important thing for you to do is not just serve more in those areas, but to do what Moses did here. Invite others to carry the load that you're carrying. Invite others to help carry some of what's in your pack. Because by inviting others to serve, you are actually helping their spiritual growth as well as yours. God didn't create any Christians who don't have a seat in the symphony. Everyone has a way to carry the load in the body of Christ. Even our kids and teens, you all can help share that load. And then the third application. If you're spending most of your time in the audience, your spiritual growth, as well as the spiritual growth of others, is going to be hindered. Because God created you to serve, to share the load. And maybe you're not sure what to do. Well, that's what we try to do as good as we can. Just try something. And if you don't like it, try something else. You don't like that? Try something else. Right? Talk, still don't know what to do? Talk to myself or any of the other elders or deacons. We'll find something that matches your gifts. We'll tell you where there are needs. Right? I mean, we have incredible needs right now uh, to help with the sound booth. Right? The folks there could very easily burn themselves out by how often they're having to serve. Right? We always need more people to pray. You could come to the prayer time at 8.45 before the service. I just did this recently for someone. I'll print you out a list of people that you can pray for to come to faith. Every one of us has a way that you can help carry the load. And you can't compare yourself to others. I'm thinking, well, I can never do as much as they do. But realize that that might be the case, and God knows that. But that doesn't mean you can sit on the sidelines. There's a seat in the symphony with your name on it. And maybe it's just the triangle, right, which is that instrument they give to the least musical person. (laughs) Uh, And anyone can play. It doesn't take any skill. You just, you know, you point at them and they ding it. But at that moment, right, in the crescendo of the symphony, you hear that ding and it rings out across the concert hall. And God hears it. And he delights in it. Because he had a space even for the triangle player. And God is creating an orchestra of praise among his people through how you serve and how you give and how you encourage others, have you found your seat in it? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help our church to truly be a one where everyone is engaged in that orchestra of praise. Lord, we aren't all playing the same instrument. Uh, We aren't all equally gifted, and yet there's a seat with our name on it, a way in which we can be part of the body of Christ, a way in which we can add our voice, our music to that grand symphony that all creation is more and more participating in. Father, help us. Uh, Help us to know how to encourage others by sharing some of our load. And we pray that those who aren't carrying anything, you would show them where they can start to bear some of that burden. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.